Well, as you know, um, in um, Tibetan Buddhism, they start out with the very foundation, the very foundation of the whole path is reliance upon the Guru. And so I've been, and then when you get into Tantra, it's it's the same. It's the same thing that you <coughs> devote yourself totally. You you surrender yourself totally to the guru, um, whoever that is that you take to your heart or call your heart lama, and. Um, I've been struggling with this because I don't know who that is. <laughs> and I, I have the idea that in the practices you, you find, you think about the highest, or you, you put your attention on the highest, the, the person that you feel is, is the the highest um, being that 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 you that's in your awareness, and you um, bring them into you, into your into your body, into your heart, and you combine yourself with that being. So that you become that that being, I think that's the idea. That you become that guru yourself. But um, it's it's uh, and, and no matter on the outer level what the guru, guru does or says or that you don't think is correct or so forth, that's only because you don't you're not seeing correctly. That you're not pure enough to, to see it. So, um, I just have a lot of um, uh, not clear, clear about it. I, I, I feel like all the gurus that I know are just one. They're all just different manifestations of this energy. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good perception. Yeah. I, I'd hold on to that one. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. And, and that should serve the purpose just fine. Well, that's, that's what I'm doing. But at the same time, I um, have resistances to uh, to doing certain practices or or um, I don't feel that I have really surrendered myself to that energy to that energy and and that's what I think is important because I still have this real clinging to my own knowing that think feeling like I know what to do, and uh, I don't, 
there's some part of me that just wants to do what I want to do and uh, not what I've been asked to do or, or feel or told to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and sometimes I know it's not based on anything more than just my little... I'm going to do this because... Mm-hmm. For instance, just one instance of that, the last uh, on Sunday night, it was late and, you know, we had a break. And I just um, went out, jumped in my car, and I was just going to go. And I, I got part way down the road and I turned around and came back. So that I was there at the end, you know, and there were some things that I would have missed if I had just impulsively driven off just because I was so tired of waiting and thought it was too late and I should. I wanted to go. So I felt much better about that. Yeah. I, that's something that's very ordinary, you know. Should I stay for the end of the movie or not? It seemed kind of boring in the middle. And then you're really glad you did. Or should I toss this book, you know, or go ahead and finish it, and in the end, you're really glad you did. Sometimes. There's other times you say, yeah, I really should have left the movie in the middle. Right, right. right. <laughs> I really should have tossed this book. Uh, I mean, you're, you're responding to the experience that you have in the moment as coming out of, you know, uh, the degree of satisfaction or dissatisfaction you're experiencing and the desire to uh, either have more satisfaction or disla- less dissatisfaction. That's, that is a very ordinary experience. Uh, and you have to be on guard against that because, I mean, if we can just be clear of the difference between uh, following a teacher and guru yoga, because guru yoga is really a, an extreme form. But with any, following any teacher and any teaching, I mean, even going to university, you know, uh, or, or any course you take, you do, to really get the maximum benefit of what the teacher has to offer, you have to give them the chance by fully embracing the instruction, but that doesn't mean you have to give up your personal powers of, uh, of discrimination and discernment, and, and, and you don't. You know. uh, it's the openness, the willingness to, to make your best effort to penetrate into the, the, the intent, the purpose of, of the offering, and see if it has its value for you. And, and, and that too, this is not something different than, you know, what we, what we need to do in every part of, uh, in any learning situation or in every part of our life when life is trying to teach us something instead of running away from it, see, see what it is that, 
what is the teaching being offered here and what can I gain from that? You know, and, and sometimes sometimes it's really good that you did. And but there are some teachers and some teachings that you realize that this just isn't for me. Okay. And that's those aren't issues that have to do with guru yoga. Those are issues that have to do with doing, exercising uh, mature self-discipline and diligence when it comes to being a student to give the teachings the best chance. And so, you know, your decision to go back for the rest of the class uh, was a good, you know, I mean, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. Sometimes you, sometimes you go back and you, you should have gone to bed, you know, but you're actually better since at least, since you came to do the course, you might as well stay and get the whole thing, you know, and, and you can always say, well, I'd have been better off getting my sleep afterwards, so that's perfectly good. But I see where it carries over to this more extreme uh, discipline of guru yoga. So you have to, you're asking yourself, with the guru yoga, with surrendering to the guru, you know, it's like, okay, it, there's two possibilities, there's probably more than that, but two that immediately present themselves. One is that, that guru yoga isn't really suited to you, uh, that's not really working, uh, and uh, Maybe, maybe you shouldn't be trying to force yourself to do something that's not a good fit. And of course, the other possibility is that it's something in you is resisting this, but it will be really to your advantage to uh, to overcome it. And you have to decide by looking deeply in yourself. This has been bothering you for a long time. It has. It keeps coming up over and over again. And it's probably a very good idea for us to talk, for you to spend more time just to, you know, if you put it into words and you explain to me exactly what all of the problem is, you'll understand it better. And I may be able to help you more with it. One thing, though, I would like to point out to you, though, is you are not having, cannot have, it is not available to you to have the guru yoga experience that corresponds to Tibetan Buddhism as it's been practiced for centuries. It is embedded in a cultural matrix which does not exist here. And Typically, a student is assigned a guru, and sometimes he's a lousy guru. Yeah. But there are other good gurus around, and there are students of other good gurus that, and this, this happens in monasteries is where it happens. There are lots of good gurus and students of good gurus around you that you're interacting with all the time. So that, you know, 
it's it's not such a problem. Not only that, if you have a real problem with your guru, you're supposed to go to a more senior person and they'll assign you a new guru until they get somebody that you can work with. None of that's possible here, right? Right. You can't, you know, you can't go to the abbot and say, you know, uh, I've been trying, but I, you know, it's just not working with me and this person, you know, and then the abbot says, that's fine, I'm going to assign you to so-and-so else, you know. None of that exists. You have not grown up in a culture where even people that aren't in monasteries are familiar with the idea of guru yoga and are able to make a clear separation between the body that stands before them and the, quote, guru. Because the guru isn't the body that stands before them. You know? And, uh, and yeah, sometimes, sometimes the inadequacies of the body that stands before you uh, stand in the way of the practice of guru yoga. And I, I suppose in extreme situations you could, you know, uh, where something's really unsuited, you know, you, uh, I, I'm sure that you could refuse to do it because guru yoga is a, a practice institution where as here, we're totally, you know, we're not used to it. We didn't grow up with it. Uh, we can't feel totally comfortable with tying the shoes of our guru together. We can't feel totally comfortable with seeing the obvious faults and inadequacies of, being, of, of sitting facing a guru and, and hearing them explain the doctrine. And, you know, they've, they've got it wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. And be okay with that. You know, we didn't, we're not acculturated to be able to do that. So we resist. So that, that's, that's, I mean, you just have to realize that everything that you read and hear about Guru Yoga as it's was traditionally practiced in Tibet and it still is in the monasteries that they've created in India, you're not really going to be able to do here. And for one thing, too, you, is that you came into this, you were already, what, close to 80 years old when you started. And they usually start somewhere between age, you know, five and seven, or, you know, they're, they're young kids when they start. So, uh, there's some really big differences. But, and maybe another thing doctrinally here is that the idea is that we all have the Buddha nature within us. And that the way we become enlightened is by bringing that Buddha nature out uh, in ourselves. But of course, if we all have the Buddha nature within us, then every other being has a Buddha nature within them too. And Guru Yoga is a way of, if you can see the Buddha nature in others, it's easier to see the Buddha nature in yourself. If you can see the Buddha nature 
in a guru, uh, then that's often easier than seeing the Buddha nature in your fellow students. And so it's a fairly simple psychological device for helping us to get past certain obstacles that we have. Uh, and and in, in that regard, it's probably quite useful. But if you can already, uh, it's not the only way. I mean, most of Buddhism does not subscribe to guru yoga. As a matter of fact, most of the other schools of Buddha, Buddhism regard it as a, a corruption imported from uh, the, the Hindu systems. You know, and they don't regard it as appropriate because it contradicts the direct teachings of the Buddha, where he cautioned against exactly that. But on the other hand, just as a psychological device, I can see where it's useful and it can be useful and effective in the right circumstances. Of course, it is open to the most incredible possibilities of abuse, but But anyway, so you are, you signed on for a system that says part of what we do is guru yoga. And it's just one of many practices. And so I suppose, let's, let's see if we can get to the root of, of, are you denying yourself the great opportunity that would be available if you can succeed in overcoming your obstacles to guru yoga? Or is it something that you're better off not wasting your time with and you focus on the other aspects of the practice that are going to get you where you need to be? So what, what's the problem with guru yoga? I guess I like the part of uh, that to see everybody, get to the place where I would see everybody as a guru, mm-hmm. everybody that <clears throat> I met as a guru, mm-hmm. every even uh, tree or rock or um, I really, really like the idea of that has been taught to us and that if I hadn't been doing this I wouldn't have known about mm-hmm. seeing ev- everyone and everything as perfect um, or as if I didn't see it as perfect it was my own um, either my karma or my or my own uh, imperfections that were in the way. That that um, part really seems to work. Mm-hmm. But I also recognize that there are certain, as you said, that some of my things that I see are absolutely correct. I mean, that you know, it's kind of a, a tricky thing. Um, to see what what is just pure projection uh, that 
and, and what is a correct perception or correct, I don't know what word you'd use for it, you used earlier, but I can't remember. Um, uh, a valid... It's just seeing, seeing, seeing how something is. Mm-hmm. And it is that, that it is that way as far as... As far as our relative reality. As far as the relative reality is yeah. concerned. And that, uh, so, you know, sometimes it's... I think I'm getting pretty good at that. And um, letting things be how they are, you know, and not feeling like I need to make them different. Except sometimes you do need to try to make them different, but in general, just letting it, letting it be how it is and not trying to uh, manipulate it or, or ch- you know, put it, change it to what, the way I think it should be. And that's all, that's all good. But um, that's very helpful, you know, what you were saying, I think it's very true also. And uh, yeah, I think I need to, to take what part of it I've had, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for, for what the teachings that I've had. And and Garchin and you and you know all that's coming to my life and just in the last years, just in the past few years, and it's just made a huge change. So I think for 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 all people, I would I can see the, the huge value of having teachers. The huge value of having teachers is not the same thing as guru yoga. <laughs> no, it, yeah, I guess it's, that's it, right. They're two completely different things. Uh huh. The whole world acknowledges the value of having teachers. Uh huh. But only a very, very small part of the world sees any value in guru yoga, and most of the world rejects it. Uh huh. Which doesn't mean necessarily that it can't be a very useful and wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe um, maybe part of it, well, part of the thing, part of the teaching that I think is really good is the respect that's like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's carried in, like in the vows, it's, it's, the vows are ridiculous as far as it, a lot of them are, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. And but the but the idea of respect for other beings mm-hmm. that you know we have great lack of respect in this in this, in this society I, I feel mm-hmm. there is great lack of respect for each other 
for for parents, for elders, for children, for anything, you know, except um, yes. getting stuff. Well, I, I, our sense of self has really contracted, you know, and that's why we don't respect our, our elders and our parents, is because our sense of self has contracted. It doesn't include them anymore. We don't respect our neighbors and our community because because they're now other instead of us. And, and it basically leads, I mean, begins with not respecting ourselves. I see for myself um, that, and, and I see this with many people that I talk to, that they don't like themselves, mm -hmm. basically don't like themselves. And I don't know if that comes from parental, from parents that didn't know how to, you know, I know hardly anyone, maybe Shirley, who had a good childhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, it's a very rare thing. But hardly anybody I know is, has, has had a really good childhood so that they don't have all this stuff to work with when they, when they get older. So what's the problem with Guru Yoga? Well, I guess you, you you cleared it up a lot for me by telling me that it wasn't part of our our culture, mm -hmm. and uh, so all the the stuff that you know came down from Jade Sankapa is is all, and I had trouble with that from the very beginning. Seeing the the guru as the foundation of the path, and it was, and it, and it, and it is in a way, because, but not in the way that they do it, as you say. I I don't. Um, Regret any of any of any of what I've done because it has made huge changes in me. So from that point of view, I can say, well, I, I'm I'm really glad that I did that, and I expect I'll finish it next fall. Will be the end. I think. So you've learned. You've learned about the Tantra. Would you say you understand the Tantra clearly? Oh, no. You don't understand the I, purpose of it? Well, it I, I've had the, the, I have had a beginning map of the inner body and, and um, the, uh, the prana, the, the chakras and the, and the, Tumo and uh, that whole inner body system that that they have in uh, tantra. Well, that's the details of the method. Yeah. Do you understand the purpose of the method and how it works? 
Well, I think it's really to to bring the, the Kundalini um, maybe maybe what we were doing out there is is a similar kind of a thing. It's something has given me a tremendous amount of energy and um, unbelievable amount of energy for mm -hmm. for somebody my age. Yeah. And when we're doing and, and after we stay up late at night and everything else, I'm still able to just carry on because a lot of energy has been generated. Yeah. So from that point of view, I, can, I can't say that I have a, a deep understanding of anything about it except that it seems to work. And I'm not, um, I don't have a partner, I, I'm not, you know, for, my, for me at my age it's not even, it's not even the thing to do partner practice. But, but um, for most of Tibetan Buddhism, it's not a thing to do partner practice. Yeah. Well, I think they they have partners. They're according to what I've heard. I mean, they're in secret, but those they have had at some time anyway. And I don't know how they how they work, you know. But um, these these um, Tibetan all these Tibetan teachers that that are over here somehow they they bring out something when you go you know to to their places and mm -hmm. and you're with them. Something is being transmitted that feels good, mm -hmm. better than any church we have. Mm -hmm. I think that's why so many people are being uh, drawn uh, to something that works for them or gives them some, I don't know, it's, it's uh, I don't understand where it comes from unless it's, uh, uh, a vibrational, um, it's a vibrational thing, I think, mm -hmm. and that I think our bodies are all vibrations, and um, when you're in the presence of somebody who's at a high level of vibration, then you begin to right. tune into that. You sure do. And, and if you're in a low level of vibration, it's like, ugh. There are so many accounts of that experience with the Dalai Lama, you know, and by very intelligent, by people that are actually resistant to believing in those things. I, we may have both read some of those accounts. One was uh, some scientist or other who was filled with a lot of anger and, and hatred and uh, maybe towards his father, but he was very successful and he ended up working with the Dalai Lama, and he described how just being in the Dalai Lama's presence repeatedly over years changed him. And it wasn't anything the Dalai Lama said or anything. 
was just being in his presence. Yeah. I, did you read that? Uh, uh, I've read several things like yeah. that. And many people say that. So, you know, we can, and considering the kind of people, we can say that, well, it probably isn't just, you know, the, their wishful thinking and, and, and imagination and stuff like that. Now, do you seriously believe that the Dalai Lama does partner practice? Um, I don't know. He he talk, he this book, in this book he he talks about tantra and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. What does he say about practice for the partner? Um, the he this is the whole he goes right down the line with Jaitan Kappa. Mm-hmm. They say Jaitan Kappa built this special place at the monastery where this woman in red came to visit him and uh, and that then he then Vajrayogini came to him. So it may be that they they started with some some feminine energy and then it it became um, a deity. Uh, because this this whole book is called the Union of Bliss and Emptiness. So in Tantra, bliss is the masculine and emptiness is, is the feminine that combine, and then it's uh, the union the union of the two. Then that eliminates um, dualism. When that when that understanding takes place. And of course they say, you know, Tantra is, is the fast way to realization or to... Um, and I think for some people it, it's, it's probably working. I see some of the people, some of the couples at Diamond Mountain seem to be um, Doing, doing quite well, and others don't. Of course, like Christine and Sean, mm-hmm. and even now, Geshe Michael and Christy are not together anymore. He's doing his things, and she's doing her things, and that's like a whole new thing over there. That's like another teaching. That. Um, has everybody kind of it's, it's like a, sh- a shake-up mm-hmm. and um, I think it, it, it has it's a great value they're not going they are not going to go into retreat together and um, she's doing her teachings and he's doing his mainly he's still um, setting people up for uh, projects that they're doing. Very, some very fantastic things are happening that people are doing, starting classes in different places, and they're not, and they are changing. And he has also, has, has come away from the Tibetan stuff and, and uh, told everybody 
teach it the way it works for your students. He, he, he's, he does not know? He's, he's told them, you know, you can, you can teach it in a Christian way, you can teach it in uh, whatever, whatever the people are that you find as your people to teach. Um, use the principles, but uh, you can. You don't have to do the lumbre. You don't have to do the. You don't have to do this. This thing. So they're doing it in all different ways. You know, really interesting uh, ways that they're getting people to come. And uh, it seems to be, as far as I can tell, uh, quite good. Quite good. Quite very helpful. For the, for this, and there seems to be a huge thirst for, for this kind of teaching. So, um, you know, I've never, I've never felt really connected with Geshe Michael, you know, on the heart level. But um, he's never, uh, he, he's. He's just given a lot of people opportunities to do things and encourage them to do things that they never would have done otherwise, or to go places and do things. So I, I really, I really uh, honor him for that. And he's encouraged people to write books and help them with it. And um, his style of teaching is, I don't. Care for. He's not. Uh, she's she's taken over a lot of the teaching, but he still, uh, you know, honors his teacher, and and so he's carried through the program that Ken Rinpoche. He's carried that through, even though it's. It's not uh, so applicable. He has understood, I think, that uh, it needs to be changed for this country, for people here. But there's still, a, you know, he still sticks to some of the things. As far as the Tantra partners are concerned, he tells them that they need, they must see each other as guru, as the guru, and, and be totally devoted to each other. And he says it won't work otherwise. If you don't see that, it's totally divine. It's not going to work. Which so, won't work. Huh? Which won't work? Partner practice. The the partner practice of, of reaching uh, reaching bliss uh, and emptiness. Right. That was the last thing he said. You know, when I turned the car around and I came back, that was the last thing he said in the class. If you don't see each other as as the guru, your partner practice will not work. 
That's right. I'll have to find another way to reach bliss and emptiness. Yeah. Right. Which there are lots of others. Yeah. <laughs> there are other ways. Right. So anyway, that's... So, that's, so have, are you, is your concern about guru yoga resolved now? I don't really know how it is. I, I don't... I mean, what guru yoga were you being asked to do? Well, seeing the seeing the teacher as the as the guru, seeing the teacher as uh, perfect, no matter what they did, they say that over and over. I mean, the Dalai Lama says it in, the, in all the texts. It says it over and over. No matter what the teacher does. You see them as perfect, and you do what they say, and you. So then you're always struggling, struggling with your mind. So it's kind of, it, it's a restriction that that I don't like, and I don't think it doesn't work for me. So, have you had conflicts with things you were told to do that you didn't want to do? Well, one of the things that. I mean, but I could also see, like Geshe Michael at the beginning told me to to get uh, some Native Americans over there, some Apaches over there, and 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 to bring them. And and I didn't want to, you know, it was too hard. I thought it was too hard. I didn't really want to do it, but I. But because he told me to do it, I had the feeling I really need to do this, and. I think the results of that have been wonderful for me, that I did it, even though I didn't really want to do it. Mm -hmm. It was like, it took a lot of effort and um, of, of trying to, to get it all arranged, and they made that holy ground up there. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful place. I've had some wonderful experiences there and brought other people up there, and other people go up there, but it's, it's not used a lot. But it's used a lot by some, by a few people. It's not used by the general group because the ones from New York and so forth, they come and go. And they, they're not connected to the land. But the ones that live there on the land are becoming pretty connected to the land. And um, so I'd say, you know, that's the only thing he ever asked, asked me really to do. And I could have done a lot more with it, but I, I didn't. Oh, he did ask me to um, do a festival, you know, to do a festival over there that would be, uh, would include Native Americans and pe white people that were there and uh, Mexicans and, you know, all the people that had lived over there, just have a festival that would be like that. And I tried, I tried that, I tried doing that. And uh, I knew I couldn't pull it off by myself. And so I said, I'm not going to do this unless I have some help. And so this one woman told me she would help me. But when it came down to do it, she just fell by the wayside. And so I just gave the whole thing up. Well, he also asked me to teach with Kat on the, how to build a retreat place. And I tried with that, but... Um, Cat was like a wild horse. You know? I mean, she's, she has incredible ideas, and she starts things, and then, then it goes on to something else, and they don't get finished. And so I quit that, and I, I, uh, in 
those days I didn't realize you were supposed to go to the lab and you were to say, I can't do this and I give, ask your permission not to do it. Instead, I just sent an email and said, I can't do this. And, and then he sent an email back saying, we understand. So that was done. But there are a number of people who are carrying out projects that he's given them to do that are hard. And some of them seem like impossible. But I, I can see that it may be, I can see that it's for their own good because some of those young people really need to go. I, th I think that it's valuable for them to, because a lot of them have come from very well-off homes, they've had a very easy life, they've never had to do anything. And uh, I think that, it, you know, in some cases it hasn't worked, but it, in a lot of cases I think that it has um, has strengthened them and, um, and given them an experience that they'll never forget. Just yeah, I think, I, I agree with all that. I think you're absolutely right. It's completely true. And it's very, very mundane. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing tantric. There's nothing mysterious. There's nothing mystical about it. Military schools and the military do this for thousands of people all of the time. Young people go into the military and because of the discipline, because they have to do what they're told, no matter how stupid it is, it transforms them. It, it's, it works, yeah. But it's, it, there's nothing magical or mysterious or mystical or Buddhist about it. It works in the military. It works, uh, I mean, very often somebody becomes a graduate student and they're told that's, you know, you're going to do what I say, whether you think it's right or wrong, you know. And, and then when you're finished, if you disagree with me, with me, that's fine. But you know, while you're in my lab or whatever it is, you do exactly what I say, uh -huh. and that's the contract. Uh -huh. And it works. It does has marvelous effects. So I agree with you. Yeah. But, but you feel like it hasn't given them any spiritual understanding. It. Having done all those... It helps people, well, if you call it spiritual, to come, you know. I, I, some people would describe what happens in those circumstances as being spiritual. But what I mean is it's, it's mundane, too. I mean, it's happening all around you in the world of very unspiritual people. You know, and if somebody... I, I believe that uh, the military produces some really noble individuals. It always has. And someone might or they might describe that personally as, as a, a spiritual effect. But what I mean is military organizations are ordinary. They're not spiritual even if they have that kind of effect on some people. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm just saying there's no surprise uh -huh. that uh, if you've got an organization where, however it comes about, if there is the respect for authority and if there is a, a hierarchical structure and if uh, young people are uh, put in a situation where you know, they have to follow the instructions of their superiors, right or wrong, 
it has beneficial effects. No surprise there. <laughs> but then, how about the uh, the moral issues? Like what? Well, the 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 besides the um, the vows. Well, they're really like the precepts that you do here. Right. right. Vows and precepts are very helpful for people and very useful and yeah. And that, that that's a very powerful tool. And that's part, of the, that's part of the thing that's, that, that we were told over and over and over again. Keep your vows. Yeah. Keep your book. If you don't do anything else but one hour of meditation a day, keep your vows, keep your book. Mm -hmm. That's the highest gift you can give your guru. That's, that's what, what mm -hmm. Yeshi Michael said, but at the same time he's given them all kinds of other jobs to do right. and everything, which... Right. But for a lot of them, they haven't had time to keep their vows and do their book. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of a an opinion. So anyway, I think uh, I think I, I, that that you know our talking here is kind of cleared up stuff for me a lot. I think that you are a very highly spiritually developed person. Uh, I think that you can be mindful and recognize things that are happening in your in your own mind, and uh, you know, and, and you can trust yourself. I think you can trust the inner guru. Forms, outer forms, are one of the things that the Buddha himself said, fall away, you see that they're empty, you see, you know, all these things are projections of the mind. Um, and they, they have a utilitarian value. But once they've served their purpose, it's ridiculous to keep carrying them, you know, like the simile of, of the raft. Once you, once you cross the river, you know, uh, it would be silly to carry that raft with you afterwards. Yeah, that's the way I feel about you know all those books and everything. <laughs> yeah. They they were they were good for me. Mm -hmm. It was good for me to do those those studies and. And to keep that book, I still keep the book, mm -hmm. but um, I just skip over some of the vows. They they aren't they don't apply to me at all. Right. Yeah, that would make sense. But I feel every day like I need to. I want to. I really want to. You know, check myself. How am I doing here? How am I doing there? Am I remembering this? Because I, all of us, just go so unconscious uh, about what we're doing. We just. I mean, it's very hard. I think the mindfulness thing—that's part of the mindfulness thing. I think is is checking in every day. Mm -hmm. Have I ever been doing this? Have I ever been doing? Am I aware of this? Am I thinking about this? Yeah, the book is a way of practicing mindfulness. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. It is. 
and I, I'd like to get it to the place where, you know, every action, every thought, and every word is mindful. And through mindfulness, we can transform the mind, which is like the body. It's not what we really are. It's just a it, it's just an aggregate of things that operate on their own causality. And that's what I'm aiming for. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you've made all kinds of wonderful changes in the way your mind works and the kind of person you are as a result of that, right? And where I live and what I'm doing, and just have to get rid of the rest of my stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me about the tantra. I mean. We, we have these meditations that I think are, are, are pretty good. This is a different visualization. You know, we started out with visualizing all these deities, mm-hmm. you know, the balloon on the head and all that kind of thing. But then in, in Tantra, you go into a different mindset in a way, uh, definitely into a, what they call a left, left-hand path, which is you don't do things. So you, you could do things in you know kind of a crazy way that doesn't fit with uh, the regular things. But we do these meditations where you see, see yourself as totally empty. Mm-hmm. There's nothing here. It's just an outline of perhaps of light that's shining. And then you visualize the central channel and the other side channels that are wound around the, the chakras. Mm-hmm. And uh, the point of it is to try to open the central channel so that the energy is not restricted by these the uh, mental afflictions. One side is mental afflictions. The other side, I think, is um, anger and or... Uh, Anyway, it's all of the things that obstruct you, obstruct you from being totally aware and and free. Mm-hmm. And so you visualize the, this tumult or this inner fire. It can be it could be right here below the belly, or it can be in the sexual organ. And at the top of this central channel is um, white, is like the kind of like a a substance that melts, is melted by the by this fire going upward. This is the masculine element, and this is the feminine element. It's the red and and the white, and then. 
as this energy goes up, uh, it melts this that comes down, and then the, the, there are these inner winds, a downward wind and an upward wind, and so as you're, you're and they do a yoga has a lot to do with this too, so that you're the upward that that you're bringing this wind up, which normally goes down bring it up and this one down and they, they meet at the heart mm-hmm. and then they struggle with each other in a way t- until they're able to open this drop that's at, at the center of the heart and and there's more restrictions around the heart than, than any other place from these uh, the heart chakra is mm-hmm. really bound up in these, these things Th- those are the visualizations and that um, uh, I have been experiencing, as you know, these upward mm-hmm. movements. Mm-hmm. And they're like joy, you know. They're like just totally... I, I just... It makes me feel very joyful. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the people over there doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're, when we're sitting in meditation, they're, mm-hmm. they're doing it like this. And it's that. So that eventually, apparently, uh, in meditation, that becomes calmed down. That you're not, you know, it, 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 it's it's like it's trying to do something, but it it doesn't get to that place. So I haven't, um, you know, I, I talked to Geshe Michael about, it, and he said that's the inner winds, and apparently. According to Tantra, all, uh, all of your thoughts um, produce the inner winds, the, or the inner winds actually ride on your thoughts. So when you can have a thought of, of something, actually I think those things are produced by thoughts. Because when I have a thought mm-hmm. of something, a something that thought. I love, that I like, something that seems true to me, that's when it happens. So uh, I can I can believe that. It feels like that's actually what's happening. So far this sounds like what happens in every kind of meditation. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so. maybe so. And it's when Brian was teaching, I and the things he was telling. I think I'm maybe at the level seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that—that uh, that feels like about right. For me. Yeah, where there's sudden bursts of energy and uh, movement and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so. Tantra involves visualization of things, and these visualizations are built around, it sounds to me like these particular visualizations are built around what tends to happen spontaneously in meditation. Without the visualization. Without the visualization. Yeah, they happen happen in Vipassana meditation, they happen in Samatha meditation. Uh, I, th- I think with the visualizations, I think it makes those specific things uh, maybe a little more intense and a little more likely to happen. Because in both Vipassana and Samatha, they happen, but you're ignoring them. You're just, you know, 
-hmm. They're just this stuff that comes along rather than focusing on them. So, but I mean, there's more to the tantra than this. I mean, how does how does this lead you to the place of of getting over your attachment to the idea that you have this real self? Well, I I suppose that if if you had a partner and if you did do these practices and you came in, into union with that partner with the help of the sexual energy um, which is not like not like having sex I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're aware that they withhold mm -hmm. and that that power of having that kind of ecstatic union would um, according to them the idea of it is that then you would have this sudden realization and you would be one there would be no male and female or would be only bliss and emptiness that the bliss and the emptiness together would be the ending of of uh, dualism, mm -hmm. and it could be for a short period of time, just like any realization, I suppose. Or hopefully, it would, would, would send you into a place where, and, and I don't think there, it's happened to too many people that they would get into this place where they were there all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody like that. So, have you got, do you have the impression that what they're saying is that you can't really practice Tantra without a partner? Well, no. You can practice, I mean the nuns and the, and the monks have to practice without a partner. Mm -hmm. It's an imaginary partner. Mm -hmm. um, that hasn't worked so well for me because I don't have anybody that I imagine, you know, that I would, would be my partner. But um, if you don't have a partner, I'm, I, I think it only works really well if you have a partner. That's the impression that you've been That's given. That's actually what has been said, has been said and written. And unless you have a partner that you're practicing this with, uh, you won't get the same results. You won't get the the best results, let's say. Well, the impression that I've gotten, you know, from reading and study, uh, is that it, it's rather the opposite. That the, the, there are very few people very few yogis practice tantra with a partner mm. uh, and that basically since the time of Sankapa the uh, Galupa has that that's been the path is the practice of tantra without a partner although in the Nyingma and the Karmapa or Karma uh, the Nima and the Kagyu 
uh, I'm not sure about the, maybe the Sakya as well. In the other schools, there's still uh, a, a small percentage of yogis that practice with a partner, but the message that I've gotten, you know, from very, very good sources, I think, is that it's just the opposite, that it, it is possible to do tantra with a partner, but it's, that's rarely the way it's done. Mm. And of course, the message that that conveys is that uh, that you, you you don't need to be a person doesn't need to be concerned that they don't have a partner. So, and the, and that kind of makes sense to me. You know, I it's it's inconceivable to me that the Dalai Lama is on the one hand a frank and outright outright repeated liar I can't see that and uh, and that uh, he is secretly practicing uh, with a partner or ever has yeah I, I I have that feeling too that he he isn't and actually he says in his books uh, that he hasn't had these experiences like he doesn't know about this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, he, but I know that's also one of the things that they do is saying, I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just a simple monk. And he says that over and over again. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything. So, I don't know if, if, if this is true that he's never had those experiences, but whatever it is, it's that he has. And I think Garchin Rinpoche, too, has been able to cultivate this totally loving heart mm-hmm. and total, total love, which is really mm-hmm. what love and compassion and, and bodhicitta, it seems like that, that is a, the, the real aim right. for any human being. To, to to have total uh, ability to to not be grasping to themselves and to to anything um, and if you were just working on on uh, attraction and aversion. <laughs> your life that's enough to work on well yes and and no life would be long enough a hundred million lives would not be long enough to finish working on that (laughs) (laughs) which which is why I mean that's only a part of the method I mean you use mindfulness to work on yourself in this way in order to be able to do what's necessary to get beyond the need to do that. Yeah, so that you would just naturally be satisfied with where you were and what you were doing and how everything was. It would all be okay. Well, yes, that's right. That's that's how you overcome suffering. That's how you become happy, is through the elimination of desire and aversion. But how do you go about eliminating desire and aversion? Well, you, you can 
attenuate them greatly and you can get control over them through these practices of, of mindfulness, that seeing the desires there and aversions there. But the root of it is that the, the false belief that there really is some kind of a self that this desire and aversion is serving. That's the bottom line. And when you realize that, then desire and aversion are still there as habits and, and tendencies. But now it's, it's like the roots cut. So now it, it's, it's much, much easier to, to finish the process of eliminating them. And of course, that leads to that leads to complete equanimity and freedom from every kind of suffering and bliss. But it comes by means of this wisdom, this recognition that that you know, I this this I that I feel like I am is just an illusion, and that wisdom. See, the, that, that's only the first part of it, but the logical conclusion that comes from that, okay, if a separate self doesn't exist, then what does exist? What accounts for the experience that we have if there is no separate self? And that's where true compassion comes from, because you realize that, that there when there is no separate self, that means that what you have been focused on is just a part of everything. So in a sense, the entire universe, all beings, everything in the universe is you, is self. And that's what, that's what, the, what the, the Hindu teachers say, is that when you get over the small self, when that small self is gone, then there's the Brahman, there's the ultimate self, there's everything. And that's where the true compassion comes from. So the progress, the process is one of the very first step the, that brings about the liberation in an irreversible way is a recognition that I've been clinging to an illusion all of the time. And it's such a relief to let go of that. And then as you continue to develop, then you then it's very easy to begin removing the last vestiges of desire and aversion. Your mind, which you are not your mind, but your mind still has all these habits, it still has all this conditioning. But now that conditioning doesn't have a root to feed it, to nourish it anymore. So you can get rid of it. But the understanding comes with the wisdom that automatically brings compassion, that, that you and I and, and every sentient being are one. We're not just the same, we're one. But there is this absolutely wonderful thing that there is a body and mind that, is, that has arisen out of this oneness and uh, so consciousness gets to experience the world from that particular vantage point. So, and that's, see, that's what consciousness is. Consciousness illuminates. That's all it is. We think that consciousness 
sees, like consciousness is the is the, the, the root of the self that sees. But consciousness is just this pure light that illuminates what arises out of the oneness, and that light is part of the oneness. Your body is going to die, and your mind, which is based in your brain, and all of those things that are dependent on the brain are going to just dissipate and scatter and, and things like that. But that is not who you are. But your body and your mind are really useful and a lot of fun, you know, sort of like your van or your house or other things you have that are useful and a lot of fun. Nice to have while they last. And Allegra doesn't have to be reborn because Allegra is already reborn and will continue to be reborn in every sentence that comes into existence. So, on the one hand, there's nothing to fear. There is no, there is no death. There is no annihilation to fear. But on the other hand, in all of these sentiences in which you're reborn, you're still experiencing suffering. So you can liberate this particular mind. And so for the rest of the life of this body and the life of this mind, there will be no more suffering. And there will only be uh, bliss and compassion and wisdom. The, the eyes of your body will look out and the mind will experience the wisdom of seeing things as they really are. But those eyes and that mind are not permanent. And those things that they see are uh, really appearances arising out of this ultimate oneness, this, this stuff that, that is the true reality behind all of this. And that's what you want to realize. That's, that's, that's what you want to, when I say realize, that's what you want to become one with. And your, your, your mind and space and time will be able to taste that, be able to experience that. And then that wisdom, which is already everywhere, By, by cleaning away all the defilements and allowing that Buddha wisdom, that Buddha knowledge that you already have, that is your true nature, to allow that to come forth actually benefits all beings and will continue to for all time. So all of these different things we're trying to do is just to get to that place of understanding what is really happening in 
this thing that's here, you know, in your mind and in your body. You feel your body. Okay. Sensations. And thoughts. The sensations and thoughts. And that's your mind. And this feelings, emotions. And that's your mind. And then your thoughts, your, your mind concocts all kinds of stuff. And some of the emotions you have are good and some are bad. Right? So, but... That's not what. That's not who you really are. You are the pure, clear light that illuminates the experience as it unfolds. And when that light is clear enough, when it's not obscured, so so this is your mind, and here is this clear light that's illuminating it. If, if, if it's all obscured, then you keep making the same mistakes over and over again. But as you remove the veils of obscuration, then that pure light, through its illumination, the mind can alter itself and stop making all the same mistakes again. So that Buddha knowledge inside of you, as soon as you allow it to start coming through, can can start to make all the necessary changes. It already has. I mean, you're so much happier now than you used to be, right? Oh, yeah. Much. And you feel so much more love and compassion for everything and everyone, right? That is the manifestation of your true nature, your Buddha nature that's already there. And you just want to keep bringing that out. Who is going to realize that Buddha nature? Nobody. But there is this device that we call the mind that is based on the brain, you know, that is going to experience this Buddha nature. It's going to realize this Buddha nature. And when that mind realizes the Buddha nature, then that mind is illuminated by it and it stops doing all the things that were hurting itself. And some things just get burned right out. Like, uh, you know, the craving that is the result, is the, is the causes. It's amazing when it just disappears and it's not there anymore. You know, and uh, I have this experience of just well, it's just not there anymore. <laughs> That's wonderful. I don't know why it's not there anymore. It's not like it's not there because it starts to be there and I think, you know, I have some wise thought that, oh no, this is not a good thing and I make it go away. It's gone at the roots. It's just... And my mind will still function in its habitual ways. But, you know, I'll look and say, okay, why is my mind doing that? Or why am I doing what I'm doing? Or why am I saying what I'm saying? And I realize there's absolutely no reason. And it just evaporates. There's no, you know, there's, there's nothing behind it. It's just, it's just like an old program that didn't get erased yet. And so, you know, and, and there's lots of those. But I don't really have to do anything about them except notice that they're there. And uh, they start getting taken care of. But your mind... 
is neither good nor bad. Your mind came with all kinds of programs that are really good for making bodies survive and make lots of babies and raising them and getting lots of stuff to make sure that those babies have a good chance of surviving. That's basically the programs your mind came with. And those programs don't really care what the impact is on on the mind that's running the program or on anybody else around it. And so that's why we go around doing all these terrible things that hurt other people and we go around feeling miserable because those programs don't care that they make us miserable. You know, and that's all they are. This is programming. And then consciousness, when consciousness arises uh, with each thing that appears in the mind, so suffering appears in the mind. And so consciousness has suffering as its object. And, and so there is this continuous obscuration, this, this, uh, this dirtiness and cloudiness and, and, and everything that prevents the, the, the illumination that's already present to, to do its work. So that's why we got to start out bootstrapping by just, you know, before we get to the point of where that Buddha nature can start shining through and doing its work, you know, we got to do the things like keeping the book, all of those other things. All these visualizations, they're all leading to the same place. Every practice is leading to the same place. You get to the place where the constant results of the mind doing its thing for one reason or another, one way or another, by whatever path you follow, they stop long enough for that illumination to penetrate and then that changes the very mind that was creating the problem in, in the first place. And that's the beginning of enlightenment. That's not the end. I don't, quite honestly, don't know if there is an end. You know, I read all these things and there's, uh, there's arahats, the fourth stage. And I can see, okay, well that represents the stage where you've made all the basic changes in, in you know, you've removed the final afflictions. But I don't think that's the end of, of the process either. You know, and this idea of uh, uh, becoming the kind of Buddha that can help all beings. Well, I don't know whether that's an accurate description of things or not. It's a conceptualization, so it's certainly not an accurate description of things. But I think what it is doing is simply saying that that's not the end, that, that the process of enlightenment, there is no end to enlightenment. You get to the point where there's very little suffering anymore, and it's great. It would be a shame to stop there. <laughs> it would be a shame to stop there. And I think, you know, I, I, I don't think that anybody ever stops there other than temporarily. 
that. But see, you're already so close. If you can just, you know, get your mind to, one way or another, get your mind to stop generating this stuff and just, you know, realize the truth that that you you don't exist. You never existed. This separate self is just a construct. And as a construct, it's fine. It's just as good as any other construct. I mean, it's it's actually quite wonderful as a construct. And not only that, as a construct, it is subject to being uh, modified and changed and improved upon. So to the extent that there is this illusory projected self that is Allegra, well, you can, you can turn that... There's no end to how perfect you can make that. But... You, it, it's not you. It's it, there is no you. It doesn't. It it, it it never existed. Never has existed. Never will exist. It's just in this present moment. There's there's the mental formations, and there's the bodily sensations, and and every moment. You can point to that. I mean, that's the five aggregates. You can point to those and say, oh, that's the self. But in every moment, it's changing, and it's, there, there is no persistent thing there. There are no things at all. There's no, there's no such thing as things. And that's all the Madhyamaka is about. That's all Nagarjuna was about. Was saying, you know, if there were really such a thing as things. As I, if objects really existed, then this would be the case, but it isn't. And this idea that we have that things cause things, he looked at that and said, it's not logical, it can't happen that way. And it can't, of course, because everything causes everything. There's no thing that's a cause and so no, no, no uh, effect separate from it. No cause that's separate from the rest of the universe, and no effect that's separate from the universe. That our minds have to reduce reality to things in order to manage. And so we have a mind full of things. But things not only don't exist, logically they can't exist. They're impossible. There is only continuous flux of the, the oneness and it's completely empty of thingness. It's empty of, of things with a self-nature. It's empty of things that are self-existent. It's just a, a flux and this mind and this body are just part of that flux. As is the clear light of the mind that sees this and recognizes that. And that's the enlightened state, is knowing that all the time. And you can get brief glimpses of that, and you can get tastes of that. But where you're moving towards is knowing it all of the time. You can logically understand that you have no self. You can have a brief experience of 
feeling like there's not a self and you're one with everything. But that's not yet even the first stage of enlightenment. The first stage of enlightenment, you achieve that when from then on for the rest of your life you don't even think that you have a self. You feel like you have a self, but you know it's not true. There's not a single moment where you feel like you really are a separate infant. Well, where you feel like, where you, where you believe that you really are. You feel like it until you reach that last stage of removing the last defilement. There's still a sense of being a separate self. But, there's, but you do not believe in it. And the same thing with the wisdom of recognizing that there is only this this oneness. Um, before that becomes the totality of your experience, you have experiences of that. You have you know you can have uh, periods when uh, and they should be more and more often. Than and last longer and longer, where you, know, you can, where you, you're you're really in that place of very clear understanding, and you see the appearances of the world and your mind unfolding, you know, but you you see them in the context of being an inseparable part of a whole, and there is no attachment to the particular group of appearances separate from the whole. And that's how you move towards being you know, fully, completely liberated from this delusion. The experiences don't matter. What I found that's very interesting talking to people and studying this is when people have enlightenment experiences, they take different forms. They take what? Different forms. Uh-huh. The people that I know that have experienced them using the the uh, Mahasi Vipassana method. Mm-hmm. It's 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 really weird. First, I thought, you know, this is it's it can't this can't be. There's got to be some mistake. But they actually, it's like they have a lapse of consciousness. They have, a, you know, they can't remember. They just there was a gap. I said, boy, that's weird. But then I realized it's because of the way their practice causes it to happen that way. And the, the practices that involve being directly aware of the mind, uh, they tend to produce an enlightenment experience where everything stops and there is just pure non-dual awareness. There's no loss of consciousness there, but there's no self and there's no object, there's nothing. There is just pure consciousness and it's all by itself. And there are all kinds of different ways that people will have these experiences. But what I found most interesting of all is all those people who become enlightened and there is no experience that they can point to. They just, you know, uh, one person, uh, his particular, this is somebody I know, and what happened with him is just one day, it just, everything, he got out of bed and everything that happened, everywhere he looked, it's just like, would become this drenching, real recognition of the emptiness of it all. And it just got stronger and he just felt more blissful. 
and he said that for several weeks he went around and all kinds of people, he was in the university at that time, and he said that people that knew him say, what's going on with you? You know, you're really... But, you know, there wasn't any one experience. It was just, there was just this kind of aftermath of, of, of you know, and, and for the rest of his life, ever since then, you know, I mean, all that, that eventually kind of died away, and now he's just a happy person. But the change, and this, I think, is the most definitive thing about it, you know, you question is somebody enlightened or not, it's that if they ever, they never question the fact from that point on that the sense of self is an illusion and that the sense of objectness of the things that they see is an illusion, that these things are, are, are empty of that. And then there's the other group. Now this, the, and, and I found quite a number of people that this happens to. They can't say, oh, I had this experience. You know, I was sitting in meditation and blah, blah, blah happened. And then afterwards, you know, I really understood. Instead, it just sort of seemed to happen over a period. Sometimes it happens in meditation, but it'll happen over a whole week in a retreat. You know, and it'll just get stronger and stronger. And they won't be able to point to say, oh, that's when it happened, you know, 10 minutes after two. But the other third group is really interesting that it sneaks up on them so gradually that it's only by having experience of recognizing that, oh, I really changed in the way I perceive things. I've, my view has changed. It's just these gradual realizations that, and, and it's not that it's happening now, but but it's happened, and it's actually been that way for quite a while, and I just didn't notice till now. And so they can't even point to a week or a month, but just it gradually happened. So whether or not somebody has achieved this goal that we're after can't be determined on the basis of what happened to them, but how they're changed by it. And the most important part of that change, the, the, the part that really defines it, well, you know what they say, that when somebody uh, achieves the first stage of enlightenment, that they have completely overcome the belief in the personal self. And that's a fact. Somebody who has overcome the belief in the personal self, once and for all, they have, that's the achievement. Doubt. From that point on, there is there can be no longer any any doubt. You know, it's sort of like uh, doubting whether your car will start. But once the engine's running, you don't doubt it anymore. I mean, it, it's inconceivable. So, so doubt is gone. And the other thing is that there is no attachment at all to rites and rituals, to rules, to things like that, because there is that awareness that. All of that is, is totally empty, and believing in rites and rituals and their efficacy is just the same as believing in the power of material objects to make you happy or to make you unhappy, or of other people to make you happy or to make you unhappy. The rites and rituals have no power to change the way you are either. So these are the things when somebody has, when somebody is permanently changed in that way, that's how they know. And you, you're, you're just, 
so close to letting go of that attachment to yourself. You know, I mean, it's going to happen any moment, and I know absolutely for certain that it'll happen when you die if it doesn't happen before, because you're so close that you're, there, there's no way when you recognize that, well, this is this is the end of it for this body and mind, that you aren't going to suddenly realize it. Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> well, I, I get that from time to time anyway. Yeah. And, and so maybe you're already, you know, maybe you won't have some remarkable wowie zowie experience. Oh, yes, of course, everything's empty. You know, maybe it'll just be that. Yeah, it's obvious to me now. I don't know when it became obvious, but it's obvious to me. Well, I've, I'm certainly um, seeing things in a different way. You know, a lot of brightness and um, beauty. wonder <coughs> of, and, and uh, yeah, I think I really let go of attachment to many, to everything actually. Mm-hmm. I don't feel attached to any, any being. Uh-huh. I don't feel attached to anything. Right. You know, I was able to let my house I right. mean, yeah. I have to take care of some stuff, you know, right. because it's still mm-hmm. my responsibility, apparently, to some extent. Let go of my cat that I've had, you know, for so many years. And my stuff, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been bringing some things over here that I, I'm going to take out again. Yeah. You know, like I just like to not have anything. And uh, it, it's hard to get rid of stuff mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, it's not—it's not that I'm attached to it, but I'm, I but guess. What do you do with it? Yeah. What do you do with it? <laughs> it's the problem. Of what That's do you the do? Problem. With it? What do you do with it? <laughs> and you don't want—you—you you, you don't want to do something that is wasteful and not considerate of the world, other beings, everything else. Right. This, this stuff. This stuff still has usefulness. Right. Yeah, I know what you mean. So it's it's uh, just figuring out what to do with it. Some of it just, I mean, I could just, I don't, I have something in me that I, I just can't hold, haul it to the dump. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it has some value for somebody. Right. David said, well, let's get in the truck and, and go to a swap meet and, and have some fun. And mm-hmm. that's kind of appealing to me. Yeah, right. Just load it up in the truck and go to the swap meet and sit there and, have fun with people, you know. Here, look at this beautiful, wouldn't you, you know, that kind of, David would be perfect to do that with. So I think I'm going to do that. Well, spend your time practicing in any way, always, that leads you more and more to this clear realization that that 
your mind and body are just other processes like all those things going on around you. Beautiful for what they are, but they are just what they are. You know, uh, the empty, just recognizing and understanding the emptiness of everything, not being attached to any of it. Any practices that bring you closer to the recognition of just that pure light of consciousness that illuminates. Any kind of practice that allows you to just see your mind for what it is objectively, not I am that, but this is the mind, and this is what it does, and isn't it marvelous that it is the way it is, without judgment. Look at other people, look at all the gurus that surround you, not just Geshe Michael and uh, Christy and anybody else that's in that role, as what they really are, that they too have that inner Buddha nature of illumination. They too are bodies and minds, and those bodies and minds are afflicted. Yeah, I know. And that. there's nothing wrong with seeing that. Oh, look at those afflictions. Look at how that mind is doing. That's what minds do. My mind does that. His mind does it. So does the guru's mind. Does the right. same thing. Yeah, I've seen that. So, and that's that's good. That is honoring the guru. Seeing the guru as the guru really is. And there's no judgment in that. That oh, the guru's bad. The guru should be different. But rather, yes, that that body mind is doing the things that body minds do, and they're wonderful. Yeah, I've had the feeling. Well, they're just kids. They're just kids. I mean, that's what I've seen. Well, the highest guru is within. Yeah. And if some other guru says do this, and the higher guru says, no, that's not a good idea then don't do it. But if some other guru says this, and the the I want, I don't want mind says, I don't like that, ignore it. But always listen to the highest guru. And get in touch with, and stay in touch with that highest guru all the time. Good way, I think, to practice guru yoga. Mm-hmm.